mode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing Editor of The Horse. Tonight, we're talking about equine infectious anemia and how to protect your horses. If you've been following the news here at The Horse, you might have noticed what seems like an uptick in EIA cases throughout the U.S. I know, for me, this tends to be an out-of-sight, out-of-mind disease. I have a Coggins test done on my horses when it's required, and I know the consequences of infection are dire, but I've never known a horse with the disease. As horse owners, are we complacent because EIA has been so well-managed for so long, and if there are more cases occurring, does that mean more horses are at risk? To answer those questions and more, we're joined tonight by Dr. Angela Pazell-McCleskey, who is the equine epidemiologist for the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, at the USDA, uh, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, APHIS, and Veterinary Services. She is based in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, Dr. Pazell uh, obtained her veterinary degree in 2001 from Texas A&M University in College Station, Texas. She worked for equine private practice in both Texas and Colorado and has served as an epidemiologist with state and federal health agencies since 2004. She currently oversees the federal response to reportable equine diseases outbreaks uh, as they occur nationwide and has been the lead epidemiologist for more than 25 state, regional, and national disease outbreak responses during her combined state and federal service. Uh, Dr. Uh, Pelzel, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. <laughs> Thanks for wading through all of that. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why this disease and horse owners being educated about it is so important for the industry? Sure. So we've had an EIA control program in the U.S. for a long time, since the 1970s, and we've gained a lot of ground against the disease. But most of the people in the equine industry don't really know much about the disease or why they're testing their horses for it. So we really need to answer those questions for folks and, and keep them informed on why we're doing it. Also, there's been some recent changes to how the disease is being transmitted in the U.S., so it's really important at this time to make sure that both horse owners and the equine industry are aware of these new challenges that we're facing with the disease so that they can protect their horses. Okay. I want to give everyone a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We're going to be starting with questions that everyone submitted during registration. If you have a question and you'd like to ask live or you'd like a clarification on a response, you can enter it in the chat window in front of you. We're going to do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible during the next hour. Um, so let's go ahead and get started. First, I want to ask, what is EIA and why is it a concern for the health of our horses? Sure. So equine infectious anemia is a disease that's caused by a blood-borne virus, and the virus is called equine infectious anemia virus. Simple enough, right? Um, in some cases, the disease can cause really severe presentations, up to and including death in some horses that, that contract the disease. But if the horse survives the initial stage of infection, um, it becomes infected for life, and it could be a reservoir for infection for many other horses to receive the disease from that horse. Um, also, chronically infected horses, if they survive the initial infection, have a lot of health risks later on in the future. They're never quite right. Their immune system is constantly under attack. 
um, and even with um, mild bouts of stress or, or exercise or work, um, they can have some pretty significant health impacts um, just from the fact that they're constantly battling this virus in their body. So during the introduction, I posed the question of whether or not it's just been a really well-managed disease, and that's why we're not as familiar with it as horse owners. Was there a point in time where it was more prevalent in the U.S.? Oh, yes. We have gained a, a ton of ground, as I mentioned. So back in the 1980s, we were finding about 4,000 cases of EIA in the U.S. every single year. That was a vast amount of infection in the U.S. horse population. And we've been able with the testing and the management and control of the disease to get that down to current day st uh, standards in which we really find fewer than 100 cases in the U.S. horse population every year. So we've really made a ton of progress and, and it's been highly beneficial to generally improving the health of our U.S. equid population. So are there any equivalent diseases in humans or other animals that could help us better understand what EIA is? Yeah, so EIA virus is a retrovirus. And if you're familiar with um, retroviruses in the news, the main and most important retrovirus that gets talked about in humans is the HIV virus that causes AIDS. Um, so while we're still trying to understand exactly how EIA virus impacts the immune system of the horse, we do know that it's in the same class of retroviruses as HIV, and, and so that's the reason why we've struggled so much to be able to try to manage the disease in horses, and we don't have a treatment or a cure for it. So how would an owner know that their horse has been infected? Is it from being exposed to another horse that has it, or would they start seeing clinical signs that their horse is sick, or is it just that standard testing that many of us do on an annual basis? Yeah, it may be any one of those scenarios. So the clinical signs, if you are to see clinical signs pop up in the horse, they're often really nonspecific signs and they're variable severity, and it all depends on how the horse's body reacts to seeing the virus if it contracts the virus. So clinical signs in really acute cases can range from just fever and decreased appetite, something that looks very mild and looks like many other um, diseases. It, you would really not know that it might be EIA. And it can range all the way up to severe anemia and sudden death. So anywhere in between, that's the clinical signs that you could see. Or you may see almost no clinical signs at all. Um, it's often really difficult to differentiate EIA from other diseases, and that's why the testing is really important. In general, if you were to look for clinical signs of EIA, you might note commonly fever, anemia, jaundice, which would be yellowing of the mucous membranes, like on the gums or on the whites of the eye, turning yellow, uh, depression in the horse, potentially swelling of the limbs, generalized weight loss, poor doing, and maybe weakness. But Again, any of those clinical signs can be associated with many other illnesses, so that's why the testing is really important. Yeah. So at what point would a typical, your, your regular ambulatory vet uh, consider doing an EIA test if they saw some of these clinical signs that might have differential diagnoses? Yeah, I have a lot of practitioners who really come to this differential diagnosis when they've taken a quick look at the horse, they have some of these nonspecific clinical signs and they don't have a really good reason for why the horse should be exhibiting those types of clinical signs. For instance, they've ruled out 
you know, the horse is not in a boarding facility where it would have a respiratory infection and the horse hasn't traveled, or there's a number of other things that a veterinary practitioner would be looking at to rule this out. Um, and sometimes it may take them a couple of days to really start to get the nagging feeling that, hey, this horse hasn't been tested in a long period of time. It's showing, or at all, and it's showing clinical signs that could be EIA. And at that point, usually most clinicians and practitioners will go ahead and run a Coggins test just to make sure that they are not dealing with EIA. So let's talk about that Coggins test a little bit because it, it's one that, um, that as horse owners, we have done, I think, when it's required, when we're crossing state lines or whatever uh, the requirement is for uh, the discipline that we're participating in or how we're traveling with our horses. Um, but what is that test? What is it testing for and how does it identify this disease? Yeah, so the Coggins test is named for Dr. Leroy Coggins, and he was the gentleman who back in the 1970s actually developed this test. So the Coggins test that we use today is actually an auger gel immunodiffusion test, an AGID, and it's just a clear gel in which we put your horse's blood on the gel and we, we try to get it to react to an antigen for EIA virus. And if your horse has antibodies to the EIA virus, it will react on the gel and we'll be able to see that reaction and that would indicate a positive test result for EIA. Um, the other type of test that we use is also an antibody test and that's called an ELISA. And both the ELISA and the IG, AGID are considered Coggins tests and they're both licensed and approved for use in the US. The ELISA is just a faster and uh, easier version, I would say, of the old Coggins test. It's an enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay um, and it's more kind of like a test kit that you can run within a period of about an hour instead of the Coggins test AGID which sometimes takes a full two days to see the reaction form before they can report out. But both tests are called a Coggins test, and we use those to diagnose horses in the U.S. and to screen horses in the U.S. So are those test results and that piece of paper that we get, our, our Coggins paperwork, is that a state-regulated document, or is that a federally-regulated re document, or is that just something that our vet gives us that shows that our horse has been tested for this? Yeah, that's a good question, Michelle. So um, most of the testing that we are conducting in the U.S. is state mandated. So each state has import requirements that a horse be Coggins tested to enter the state of a variable period of time in which the horse needs to have that done before it moves to the state. Um, individual states also have their own state regulations governing whether or not you might need a Coggins test for a change of ownership. Um, or to sell a horse, um, or to reach an assembly point like a sale or show or event. Um, and then individual events, as you know, uh, will put a requirement in place that horses may need a Coggins test to attend that particular event within a certain period of time. But most of the regulations that we have out there are state regulations. Um, the form that we use, the Coggins test form that you carry around with your horse once you get negative results on it, is actually a federal form. And we at the federal government at USDA approve the use of that form um, and make it available to all of the states. But the states also have their own forms that match our federal 1011 form that can also be used. So for federal oversight, we oversee the form and the regulations currently are state regulations. So vets uh, use a lot of acronyms when they're talking about diseases um, and viruses that 
cause diseases. Um, and so with our horses, we have EHV, which is uh, equine herpes virus. We have uh, equine influenza, which is often e, um, EI. Um, so it seems like it can be very confusing um, for horse owners about which diseases their horses are being vaccinated against or tested for. I think triple E is probably, if there's another one with the E in there. Um, can you explain to us what uh, EIA is not um, when we're talking about like our core vaccines and those core diseases that, that we protect our horses against? Sure. So EIA is not any of those diseases that you mentioned. And I think we in the veterinary community have have really um, made this a problem, right? Because first we have to shorten all the very long names so that we can talk about them with everyone. Um, but all of the names start with equine because they're specific to the equine species that, that we're dealing with. So I think we've done it to ourselves, having an E start with every disease that we have, and that is very confusing. Um, what's important to differentiate EIA is that there is not a vaccine or a treatment or a cure for EIA. Whereas many of the other diseases you mentioned, we have vaccines and treatments and potentially the ability to get a horse back or remove that particular infection from a horse. So um, I think that's the, the most drastic thing that makes it different from all of the other E-related diseases that you mentioned is this is one that we cannot vaccinate against and this is one that we cannot treat or cure. Mm -hmm. And when I was going through the questions that were submitted for tonight, um, I saw a lot of questions about uh, vaccinating. When when should I vaccinate against this disease? So I think that it's just really important to uh, restate to everyone that this isn't this isn't part of your spring wellness exam, and that your horse is going to get a, a vaccine to protect it against EIA. That's that's not going to happen. And the Coggins paper or the Coggins test is is a test and that's not a treatment or a vaccine for the disease. So uh, I think just important to touch on those for everyone. Um, so we talked about the state uh, regulations for EIA. When do you, as part of the federal government, get involved in these cases? Sure. So I get involved in these cases on a daily basis, and mainly I provide support to the state animal health officials, which is the state veterinarian's office in each state, to manage the diseases um, that we find in each state that are equine related. And when they get a case of EIA, um, I'm usually working to support them to do the epidemiological investigation. And that's just a fancy word for the investigation of figuring out where the disease came from, where it spread to and how we deal with it to, to reduce um, further spread in that particular population. So um, it's a joint effort between me on the federal side and the state veterinarian's offices and local federal officials that I work with um, to manage those cases when we find it. And so we all work together to do that and we work under state quarantine authority to do that. We have a question from Corinne in BC, uh, Canada, and she wants to know, other than mosquitoes, are there any other vectors or possible vectors that spread this disease? And I'm really grateful to Corinne for this question because this is a common misconception that we need to fix. So mosquitoes, as far as we are aware, are actually not capable of transmitting EIA virus. 
So that's really good news, right? But it doesn't mean that mosquitoes are our friends relative to horses, because mosquitoes certainly transmit a number of other very scary pathogens, such as West Nile virus and equine uh, encephalo, or sorry, uh, Eastern equine encephalitis, Western equine encephalitis. So those diseases are very important um, that mosquitoes do transmit, but mosquitoes don't transmit EIA. The vectors that do transmit EIA are mainly certain types of biting flies. Uh, horse flies, stable flies, and deer flies are probably the most common types of biting flies that are capable of transmitting EIA virus. They have a certain kind of mouth parts that actually, spongy mouth parts that hold the virus um, and the large volumes of blood so that it can be transmitted from horse to horse very quickly. Um, they also have a very strong and painful bite and that actually increases the amount of transmission because the horse in response to that painful bite tries to swat the fly or move to get the fly off of it and the fly then immediately goes to another nearby horse and is able to transmit that infection with the blood on its mouth parts to the second horse. Um, so you need a special kind of fly with special kind of mouth with mouth parts capable of transmitting enough blood from one horse to another. And it's a mechanical transmission. It doesn't actually go through the body of the fly in any way. Okay. So can EIA be passed um, when you're breeding horses, if you're doing live cover or artificial insemination? We are very concerned about that, actually. Um, in the literature, you'll find that we have been able to isolate EIA virus from semen of infected stallions. So that is a concern, that it could be transmitted in the semen. Um, it can also be transmitted, we know, from mare to foal in utero or during parturition. So um, breeding of EIA-infected horses in the U.S. is strictly prohibited. We're not able to do that successfully without transmitting the disease to another horse. We have a question from our live audience. Um, Barry wants to know why a vaccine hasn't been developed yet for EIA. That's a great question, Barry, and I would really like to know that myself. I, I think the struggle lies in the type of virus that we're dealing with. Being a retrovirus, like I described earlier, you see how much time and money and how many years were spent just to have a treatment for HIV in humans where humans would live longer with the virus. We've not really been able to eliminate HIV from humans. Um, and I think the same as with EIA virus. We have nothing that would be able to eliminate the virus from horses. But you also see that we don't have an HIV vaccine for people yet, do we? Um, and I would say in the animal health world, we're always several steps behind in the ability to be able to fund the research and have the money to find um, and, and get vac new vaccines to the market. Um, the human population is much better at being able to do that for human diseases. So until we have a vaccine for HIV and the human world will break the code on how to do that, um, so far we don't have any breakthroughs in an EIA virus vaccine either. Um, so, as I uh, read about EIA to learn more about it to prepare for tonight's um, conversation, I saw several instances of California animal health authorities associating EIA infection with racing quarter horses. And so it made me wonder why is that specific population at risk for EIA? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Michelle, and it's it's really important to us in state and federal animal health authorities right now. It's not just California, actually, but we've had at least 13 different states in which EIA has been found in racing quarter horses specifically, and that's the new group in how we have new transmission happening in the U.S. Um, so iatrogenic transmission is a fancy name for transmission of a disease in which the human is involved with some sort of contaminated equipment in transmitting the disease. So instead of EIA virus being transmitted by natural transmission with the biting flies we talked about, what we have occurring in the U.S. now is iatrogenic transmission in which a person is unknowingly transmitting the disease between horses using equipment that's contaminated with blood from a positive horse. So that type of equipment is reuse of needles and syringes, which we all know biosecurity-wise we should never do. Um, it's reuse of intravenous blood sets that get contaminated with blood in the line. We also have people who are double dipping into a multi-dose drug vial that gets contaminated with blood from a horse. Um, and we have overt blood doping in the unsanctioned uh, quarter horse racing industry, bush tracking, if you will, it's illegal horse racing in which the participants will infuse blood from one horse into the horse that's gonna race in the hope of giving them a competitive advantage by giving them more red blood cells. This is similar to what we saw in the US cycling industry, another sport in which our cyclists we're infusing blood into themselves to give them better oxygen carrying capacity on their red blood cells and make them a better athlete or more performance enhancing for a specific race or meet. And they're doing that in the bush track racing or unsanctioned horse racing. So this movement of blood from one horse to another is also transmitting the disease in addition to all of the other ways that I mentioned where contaminated instruments and human involvement are transmitting that disease between horses. So when are these infected horses being identified then if they're being raced um, under the table? Um, is it when they go to a sanctioned track then and have to have a Coggins test for, for that? Very often it is. So that's one of the, the ways that the sanctioned racing industry is really helping us to clean this up and identify those cases. By having an EIA test requirement to enter a sanctioned race, um, the horses that are coming in are tested before they arrive at the track. And this protects our sanctioned racing population at the track. But that is how we're finding a lot of the cases. The other way that I've been finding cases is with education outreach, where we have some participants in bush track racing that are becoming very savvy and that are hearing that they may be purchasing horses that may be exposed or infected with EIA. And so they're taking it upon themselves to go to a veterinarian and to get their horse tested. Um, sometimes it's a change of ownership uh, Coggins test where we find that particular uh, horse positive where the owner was not gonna disclose that, but the buyer um, was smart enough to request a test and that may be how we find it as well. We have a question from our live audience. Uh, Didi wants to know if EIA can affect donkeys and mules in the same way it affects horses. Absolutely, so donkeys and mules, um, all equids, um, are susceptible to EIA virus. 
I would say that we found in the literature that donkeys and mules probably display less clinical signs, less clinical disease, or less severe clinical disease uh, than a horse would. And, and that's probably about the only difference. Um, but they do become infected and are chronically carriers just like a horse would be. So beyond the um, racetrack populations that that can get EIA, are there other equine populations that are at risk for the disease? Oh yes, always. So um, I would say untested or under-tested populations or herds of horses are our second most prevalent um, positive sets of cases. For instance, um, in 2018, we had at least 46 EIA positive horses that we identified just last year, and 33 of those were quarter horse race horses. So those were all involved with iatrogenic transmission and not with a natural fly-borne transmission. The remaining horses were, we either didn't figure out where they got infected um, or they were these untested or under-tested populations where you have a whole herd that is not tested and not protected from biting fly populations and you have one positive horse at some point that's introduced and the disease spreads over time, sometimes over many years, to where a large proportion of the herd can become infected with the natural fly transmission. Um, so untested or under-tested populations, um, sometimes horses that are free roaming on tribal lands. Um, we do test any of the BLM horses, that wild horses and burrows that come off the range for adoption or for movement into a holding facility. So all of those horses are tested and we haven't identified a recent problem in our BLM horses. Um, but we do not get to test tribal horses. Um, they're a sovereign nation, and they choose to test their horses if they want to. We have a follow-up question from our live audience about the Coggins test. Uh, Christy wants to know how long is that test good for and why? Yeah, so the different requirements that are out there, um, most of the states require a new Coggins test for entry into the state within the past 12 months. And that's really an arbitrary thing. Um, that was a decision made to try to reduce the amount of burden on the equine industry so that they're not testing so frequently, um, and yet try to give us some sort of recent test before the horse enters that particular new state for the requirement. So it was really um, a compromise. Um, some states have a six-month entry requirement, a Coggins has to be done within six months, but I would say most states have a 12-month test, um, and that's similar for change of ownership as well, would be a test within 12 months. And again, we're trying to walk that fine line between um, did the horse have recent exposure, does it have recent evidence that it's test negative? Um, we don't want to wait several years before the horse gets retested to prove that it really is free of the disease. Um, so, obviously, we have a system in the U.S. to try to control EIA. Are imported horses a concern for bringing EIA into the U.S.? And how do we control and quarantine and test horses that are coming from overseas or across borders? Sure. That is certainly a concern for us since we have such a good control program in the United States. And other countries, um, some have their own control programs, and we have a neighbor, uh, Mexico, that doesn't have any control program at all, and they do have 
a large proportion of their population that, that is infected with EIA virus. So certainly, um, we are worried about horses being imported that might bring EIA into the country from outside. To manage that, all horses imported to the United States are required to be tested for a certain set of diseases, and EIA is one of those required tests. And we test those horses ourselves uh, at the port of entry. Uh, we conduct that test, and it's run at our National Veterinary Services Laboratory in Ames, Iowa. That's our national reference lab for USDA, um, and we run those tests to make sure that the horses being imported are not currently infected with EIA. So what about international competition that brings horses from all over the world together and elite athlete horses uh, onto one uh, property? How do we protect our horses when they're competing internationally or when we're hosting horses in the U.S. for things like World Equestrian Games? Sure. So um, we actually, USDA has oversight over those um, international competitions for which we have waivers for some horses to come in with certain diseases that we don't have. Equine periplasmosis is an example of that, where the international horses might be kept separately um, if they are of a certain disease status um, and they're not allowed to have contact with um, our U.S. origin horses. And they're also um, undergo a higher level of security and scrutiny. Um, for instance, for equine periplasmosis, we examine those horses as they come and go from exercise for ticks, um, and they're required to have a, a caricide treatment, which is um, a treatment to prevent ticks or biting flies from that horse and moving to other horses in the population or in nearby barns. Um, so we have a great deal of work that goes into international events, especially if there are horses of um, special disease status that we may be allowing to come and compete. For the most part, most of the countries that come and compete internationally here in the U.S., um, they have generally the same or a better EIA disease status than our country does. So we're generally on the same platform as far as EIA risk. Um, so really, they might be worried about our horses giving it to them as well, which is why all the participants are EIA tested to enter those events. Uh, we have some follow-up questions from our live audience. Uh, Mary Ray wants to know, what are the options for owners when their horse tests positive for EIA? Yeah, there are a couple of different options. Um, certainly, uh, euthanasia is an option. As I said, this is a lifelong infection of the horse, and we don't have a treatment or a cure to remove the infection from the horse, unfortunately. So some people do select to euthanize those horses. Um, the alternative is a permanent quarantine situation. And in a permanent quarantine, when we place those, um, the horse is required to be at least 200 yards away from any uh, non-infected horse and maintained that way, along with um, vector control to keep the flies away. That 200-yard rule is really important because that's what we have calculated through research is pretty much as far as these flying uh, vectors can go with the virus on their mouth parts being still able to transmit it to another horse. So that's really handy that the horse doesn't have to be in a cinder block hut or permanently kept away with walls or screens. Rather, we have this distance that we know that we're not able to get transmission from these biting flies to another horse 
after a certain distance is flown by the vector. So who monitors those quarantines to make sure that um, they're being done appropriately? Yeah, so the state animal health authority, which is the state veterinarian's office in each state, places the quarantine and monitors and manages the quarantine. We have federal animal health authorities that are located in each state that can also help the state animal health official do those compliance checks um, and make sure that the quarantine is being followed. Uh, we have a question from Erica in Florida who wants to know if there are really more EIA cases or is it just getting easier to see the, the positives now that we have the Equine Disease Communication Center? And maybe explain. Fantastic question. Yeah. So the Equine Disease Communication Center is a joint state, federal, and industry-led um, initiative whereby um, we have a website, um, we have uh, email and Twitter alerts, and there's a 24-hour call center that's run by the industry where we want to immediately share equine regulatory disease information with all of the equine industry and all the horse owners who sign up for those alerts. So the Equine Disease Communication Center has been a wonderful way for us to communicate effectively with as much as the, of the equine industry as we can at one time. And the point is to give the general public the real confirmed information about the disease that we're talking about. So these are real cases. They are alerts that are posted and put forward by the state or federal animal health officials. So they're diagnostically confirmed. And we put those up just as quick as we can to inform the public of what their risk is from that particular disease and the location and where that disease is occurring. If you haven't signed up for the EDCC, um, go to the website, Equine Disease Communication Center website. You can Google it and sign up for the alerts. It's been really great. Um, and this is an idea that helps us to overcome the social media disasters when misinformation is spread through Facebook or Twitter or other sources. This is the confirmed information that we get out to you immediately, straight from the horse's mouth, if you will. The question is a really a good one. The EDCC has been putting out alerts for three years now, I think, and it's been very successful in informing our industry about what's happening disease-wise. So you have seen a lot of cases of EIA posted. And I would say there's some increase in just the awareness and the posting, and that's why it looks like there are more cases. Um, but I will say we are getting more iatrogenic disease transmission um, than we ever have before. And so it's really important now. These are cases that are transmitted by humans using contaminated equipment. And these are cases that should not occur. If the positive horse were just standing there in the pasture waiting for, infect waiting for flies to bite and move infection to another horse, it would take a lot longer. And so we're finding large clusters of positive horses that can have disease transmitted to them very quickly just by the use of contaminated instruments where the same amount of infection on that property may have taken months to years to form if we let the flies do it. So for horse owners who are, um, say, getting the horse e-newsletters and where we report on those cases and they see, oh, there's EIA cases reported in Colorado. If they're in Colorado, should they be concerned for the health of their horse or because they aren't participating in high-risk activities, 
um, then is it not such a concern? Because it's it's weighing that you know we horse owners tend to worry about our horses, um, so it's that that worry factor. Is it something that we should be concerned about if it's in our state or our area? I think it's always important as horse owners that we know what diseases are in our state and in our area and that we calculate for ourselves and work with our veterinarian to determine what is our risk of that disease to our herd. Do we have activities that may be risky um, that may predispose us to receiving that disease in our herd? Or are we generally a really biosecure area or farm where we're really unlikely to get that particular disease transmitted? So um, I think it's the responsibility of all of us horse owners to know what diseases are out there, to pay attention to the alerts, and to consult with your veterinarian on a regular basis as far as how, what is your risk from that particular alert that went out, and how do you protect your horses properly? We have a question from Hannah in our live audience, and she wants to know what horse owners can do other than testing their horses regularly to protect them from the disease. Do you have any management recommendations? Absolutely. So good vector control is always important with all of our horses, right? We talked about mosquitoes not being able to transmit EIA, but able to transmit West Nile, Tripoli, and other things. And we talked about the biting flies that are capable of transmitting EIA. So vector control is a program that we all need to have for our horses, and that means managing manure, that means using acaricides, that may mean using um, pasture pajamas, I like to call them, the fly sheets and fly masks. Um, certainly we have a lot of novel things that are really great, right? The, fleet, the feed through fly control products are really good and safe for horses. And we have wonderful biologics that are available now um, with fly predators and things like that. So you need to work really closely with your veterinarian to have an overall management strategy for vector control on your property. But other things that we talked about, this iatrogenic transmission are still really important too. And that's up to all of us to make sure that we don't have risky practices where we might be moving blood between horses on a property um, just because we're not changing out a needle in a syringe properly or because we're using a contaminated piece of equipment. So again, you need to work with your veterinarian to have all of those biosecurity options evaluated for your property and come up with a really good plan to protect your horse from both vector-borne transmission and from that human-caused iatrogenic transmission. So uh, where I live, I don't have many uh, biting flies. I'm in uh, the high desert of central Oregon. But if you go into the mountains, you get lots of biting flies, and they drive the horses crazy. They drive the humans crazy when you're out camping. Are people who are taking their horses out to camps, um, horse camps, are they uh, are their horses at an inc increased risk because of being exposed to more of those biting deer fly uh, that are out in the wilderness? Yeah, I think that's a real risk. Um, the other risk is that we may have individuals who are going to those sites that aren't following what the rules and regulations might be for that particular national forest or state land or or even just a, you know a local riding area. Um, and if they're if they don't take a Coggins test negative horse into that environment, we don't really know the disease status of their horse, and they could be infecting that particular deer fly or horse fly population and spreading it to other horses that are on the trail. So I do think it's a risk. Um, if you take horses anywhere where they could have 
contact or exposure to vectors that have contact to other horses. If you have people that aren't aware of the disease status of their horse and take that responsibility seriously, then we certainly can get transmission in those situations. Follow-up question to that was, if you ride on federal lands, are you required to have a Coggins test? I think you need to look at the individual uh, federal land requirements, either on their website or with that particular um, forest service or federal service that oversees the land. There may be differing requirements for differing types of land. So you always want to contact your destination to find out what those specific requirements are. Okay. Um, we have a question from our live audience. Michelle wants to know if she's had horses that have always had negative Coggins and they no longer computer travel, is it necessary for them to be tested every year? So I would say in that situation, if you have a history of a known negative disease status for EIA and you don't have any um, activities that put you at risk, like contact with other horses or movement on and off the property, you may be able to um, test less frequently than once a year. What I would caution you about is that you still might have neighbors who may not properly test or manage their horses. So I wouldn't say you're totally safe, um, but testing every year, you might work with your veterinarian to determine whether or not you can back off on that based on what your actual risk is and let your veterinarian help you to determine um, when that test should be conducted to make sure you maintain that negative disease status. Um, we have a question from Elizabeth in Pennsylvania. I just heard a strange sound on the line. Are you still there? I'm still here. Okay, good. Um, Elizabeth in Pennsylvania uh, says that they that she has her horses tested yearly, um, but she wants to know how long it can uh, take for a horse that is positive to start showing clinical signs. So if you had them tested on January 1st and they were infected, on January 2nd, how long would it be before they showed signs that they were sick? Yeah, so that's what we call an incubation period. Basically, it's how much time does it take from when the horse is exposed to when it either shows clinical signs and or when it might test positive for the disease. And for EIA, the incubation period is highly variable. It ranges anywhere from one week to 45 or more days after the exposure occurs. Um, and in some cases, like we talked about at the beginning, the clinical signs may be so mild that you might not see any clinical signs develop at all. Um, the horse itself will take a period of time before it will test positive on our Coggins test. Again, we're testing for antibodies, so the horse's immune system has to generate those antibodies after it's seen the virus for a certain period of time. Um, and that may be just a couple of weeks all the way up to 45 or more days. When we have post-exposure testing um, of horses that are currently negative, that have been exposed to a positive horse, we typically wait 60 days after that exposure has ended before we retest those horses on the Coggins test. And that just, we're trying to maximize that incubation period to make sure we don't miss a horse if it's actually incubating the infection and not yet testing positive. We have a question from our live audience. Joni wants to know if there's any chance of eradicating this disease in the U.S. with mandatory testing. Yeah, that's a question that we've talked about with industry leaders for the past several years. Um, I think there's a good opportunity that we could eradicate this disease from the United States. 
Um, currently, our U.S.-wide prevalence is down to 0.004% of the population. That's way, way less than 1%. It's really tiny. Um, last year, we only had 46 positive cases, and we tested a million and a half horses last year. So that's really, really good. We've got the prevalence down to a very low level. I think the only thing that's concerning is that we do have a neighbor to the south, Mexico, that doesn't have any control program at all. And while we test Mexican horses that are presented for official import to the U.S. and we test them for EIA to make sure they're negative before they come in, we certainly know that our southern border is very porous. And we may have horses that are smuggled into the U.S are moved illegally um, that are of unknown or positive EIA status, and they continue to be a threat to our industry and to our, um, our national herd. We have another question from our live audience. Bonnie wants to know, is it possible for the Coggins test to produce a false negative? In other words, could a horse test negative but actually carry the virus? Yeah, so that was going back to that incubation period that we were talking about. Again, we have to have the horse forming enough antibodies in response to that virus to be able to actually have it test positive on the antibody test, the Coggins test. So there's a period of time in which the horse is infected with the disease and may test negative. That's why we do that 60-day retest post-exposure to a horse that is known to have been exposed to a positive that we've managed, um, we are trying to make sure that we don't miss that positive disease status just because the antibodies are not formed yet. Um, overall, though, our test is really good. In a chronically infected horse, um, those horses do correctly test ELISA positive and AGID or Coggins test positive. So in a chronically infected animal, um, we do not have false negative results. We have another question from our live audience. Carrie wants to know if endurance horses can transmit EIA by using group water tanks at events, and how would you suggest preventing EIA in endurance horses specifically? Yeah, so um, transmission by water is not something that we've found to occur. Certainly, if you've got blood in the water, that would be concerning, um, but we've not ever had a transmission by that route. Um, I would say the most unusual route of infection that we've seen um, was something that occurred in Ireland in which um, an EIA-infected horse um, succumbed to the disease and bled out into a stall. And in trying to clean and disinfect that stall, the veterinary staff used a pressure washer that aerosolized the virus that was in the blood. And we did have other horses inhale that virus and become infected. So certainly the, the biting flies and the iatrogenic uh, contaminated instruments are not the only ways that, that, that EIA can be transmitted. Um, that aerosolization was another strange and unusual way. We have not seen, however, uh, contaminated water be able to uh, transmit the disease to date. So I don't think that's a high risk. For endurance horses, I would be more concerned about who is um, managing the needles and syringes and equipment around those horses. Um, that should be a veterinary professional and not a layperson or a trainer. Um, they should be under the guidance of a veterinarian who knows how to properly clean and disinfect equipment that could be blood contaminated that would directly go from horse to horse. 
but I would say competing in eventing itself is probably not a high risk for transmission during the event or at an event. Um, our next question is from Jenna in Oklahoma. She wants to know what are the quarantine procedures for horses that have been exposed to an EIA-positive horse? Yeah, so once we've managed the EIA-positive horse, which is either um, complete isolation at least 200 yards away from the rest of the herd, um, or removal of that horse from the premises, whether it's to another premises or whether the horse is euthanized, the remaining horses that are currently test negative are going to be held under quarantine for an additional 60 days at a minimum, where they're going to be retested at that time to make sure that they weren't incubating the disease and they didn't actually pick it up um, from the horse that was infected. Um, so that's really the, the, the process itself is just that additional longer quarantine period so that retesting um, of the currently negative horses can be can be done for assurance testing. So if you have a positive horse at a track, it seems like that would be a significant um, financial impact to that track and that it the, is. the people at that yeah. that are competing. It is. Um, I would say because you're at a big venue like the backside of a racetrack, it's really important that all of us maintain our responsibility for the disease status of our horse. So if we do get an exposure like that, um, if the state or federal animal health authorities are not able to test every horse on the track um, free of charge, and, and that happens, you can't all pay for a thousand horses to be tested on the backside sometimes. Um, we usually put out a message to the Horsemen's Association to let them know that we are highly recommending that they monitor their horse very carefully, that they work with their veterinarian, and that they get a new Coggins test drawn um, at least 60 days after the exposure has occurred to make sure that we didn't get transmission. Uh, we have a question from Megan in Idaho. She says that um, she's signed boarding contracts that require Coggins but have never been asked to show proof. Who's responsibility is it to make sure boarded horses or horses that shows that say they require a Coggins test uh, get checked? Yeah, that's a great question. So this actually depends on who places the requirement. So if you're in a state where there are no um, requirements for EIA testing at assembly points, um, for instance, a show or event or boarding facility, then the EIA requirement, test requirement that's being put in place is probably being done by the show and event manager or by the boarding facility manager. So it's not a state requirement in those instances. So the person if, who put the restriction in place, the person who required um, the Coggins for that show or event or the boarding facility manager who required that, they're really going to be the ultimate person who should be checking that paperwork to make sure that people are following um, the guidance that they've put out. We do have some states, Texas is one of them that I'm very familiar with, that has an EIA test requirement for horses that enter an assembly point, and that includes shows, events, and boarding facilities and stables. So in that instance, where there is a state law that horses that are con congregated or commingled at an assembly point of any kind are required to have a current EIA test within the last 12 months, that would be the state burden since they're the one who placed the law um, to follow up and check on those types of requirements. Certainly, that's very labor intensive and they can't 
do all of that checking, but I know they do attempt to do that, especially if they've had a problem with a certain event or facility following that regulation. Is there a, a legal responsibility for um, owners that potentially have a positive horse or for facilities that accept a horse without checking Coggins that could have it? Uh, I'm just, I'm thinking of the, the, the legal risk of being responsible for infecting other people's horses. Yeah, I think that's a very significant legal risk. Um, certainly, we know that we're in a very litigious society um, and that everyone has heard a horror story about someone getting sued over a horse, whether it's over a sale or a movement or an injury or a disease. Um, so I think that is a universal responsibility for all horse owners um, and boarding facility managers and event managers to maintain and know the disease status of our equids. And that may mean that if they don't do what is right and generally considered common sense and proper in our industry to prevent that disease from occurring or prevent ongoing transmission at a facility, I think a, an attorney might be willing to take a case like that and they may be open to legal ramifications just from an individual complaint that that person or the lack of their responsibility may have contributed to infection of their horse. We have a question from Ellen in our live audience. She wants to know if horses or if uh, cows can carry EIA and if it can be passed from bovines to equines. So great question, not that we know of. Um, so equine infectious anemia is an equid specific disease and, and equids are the only known reservoir capable of transmitting that to each other. So um, horses that are co-pastured with cattle, the cattle are not at risk of either um, obtaining the infection or of causing a horse to become infected. Um, we have a question from uh, Fernando in Mexico, and he wants to know if the ELISA test for EIA can be reliable and used as a valid result at horse shows or is the Coggins test the only one that should be used? And I, I think you did touch on this earlier, um, but if you could address that specific question. Yeah, absolutely. So the two uh, tests that are used for EIA in the US that are licensed and approved and are acceptable for use at shows, events, venues, anywhere, are the ELISA test and the AGID test or the Coggins test. So both of those tests are very reliable. They're well used and they are approved um, to be your negative test result, even if you just run the ELISA only. There are currently four different ELISA test kits that are manufactured and approved for use in the US. Um, and our USDA Center for Veterinary Biologics is the entity that oversees um, those manufacturers and those test kits to make sure that they're of the appropriate standard and quality to be an official test. So the ELISA test is an official and used test and acceptable in the United States. Kay in our live audience uh, wants to know more about the potential for a vaccine. You talked about that a little bit earlier, but she wants to know if there's anything that's promising in the research that shows that we could have a vaccine on the horizon if it did get funded. Yeah, I'm sorry to say that I don't think that we have had any recent breakthroughs um, for an EIA vaccine in the future. Um, one of the things that I'm especially concerned about is that 
some of our lifelong EIA researchers, um, three of them specifically that were at the University of Kentucky Gluck and were one of our main reference laboratories for EIA, um, those three EIA researchers retired last year all together. And so right now, we don't have another source of really good standardized EIA research that's occurring for peer-reviewed publication in the U.S. And, and we're struggling, I think, in the future to try to figure out who are those researchers going to be. So I have high hopes for our future generations that are coming into animal health research and especially equine infectious disease research. We are going to have to find some new blood and some new researchers um, to help us tackle this topic because right now we don't have um, anything happening to help us. Yeah. Um, before we close tonight, because we only have a, a couple minutes left, I'm I'm wondering if you have anything that you would like the audience to take away from tonight's conversation. What what is the most important piece um, that you would like them to uh, understand and take it to their management of their horses? Yeah, I think one of the most important things to take away is that we've spent a lot of time um, in the past focusing on individual horse diseases um, like colic and laminitis, which affect a large number of horses out there, but only one individual horse that gets that particular disease or problem at a time. And I think we've neglected the role of infectious diseases in the United States and its impact on our overall horse health and its economic impact on our massive U.S. equine industry. And I think the industry is just now coming to terms with the fact that equine infectious diseases are a really big deal. And they're starting to get the message out to individual horse owners that if we don't take responsibility for the biosecurity at our own farms and in our own horses in preventing infectious disease transmission of any kind to our horses, then we really are failing at protecting the national horse herd in the United States. So we have a really important responsibility as horse owners to manage biosecurity on our farms, to work closely with our veterinarians, to keep our horses in top health, and to be aware and cognizant of all of the different impacts that equine infectious disease could have on our herd and our U.S. industry. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pazell, for being with us tonight and answering all these questions. Um, we've had a, a nice, uh, large, active audience behind the scenes that you, you haven't seen the inner workings of, of what's going on behind the scenes, but we have um, a, a bunch of people out there. Um, unfortunately, that's all the time that we have for tonight. Um, so again, thank you for, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle, and, and thank you all for this opportunity to, to provide some really good infectious disease information to your audience. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Uh, for those of us or those of you who are listening live, um, please join us next month. We're going to be talking about neck and back pain in our horses. Until then, from all of us here at the horse, have a great night. <laughs>